Okay, the only announcement I'm aware of is that we're going to be having a covered dish dinner on the August the 7th after church. So see and write about what you need to bring, uh, salads or desserts. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship. Scripture says that When we sin, it breaks fellowship with God. We lose the ongoing filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit for spiritual growth. And when we confess our sins, then that fellowship is recovered. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer before I open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening. We're thankful for good news that we've received in the last couple of days about the uh, group that's driven up to Colorado and their safe arrival and the camp that began on Sunday, the fact that things are going exceptionally well. Father, we continue to pray for uh, Charlie Clough as he teaches, for the counselors that are there, for uh, all of the uh, leaders, for those who are attending, we just pray that this would be not only a good, fun time uh, physically, but also it will be a significant time for them uh, spiritually as they're faced with the challenge of your word. Father, we're thankful for this congregation, for its faithfulness to your word and desire to implement what your word says. We pray that you would continue to help us to understand things as we study your word this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get started in our study in Acts 3... I thought I would bring you up to date just a little bit, not a, not a lot to communicate, but I left Sunday immediately after church to fly up to um, Washington, D.C. for the Christians United for Israel uh, annual conference. And this is a group that began about six years ago, and they had they were expecting that in the entirety of the conference to have about uh, close to 5,000 in attendance, and that could easily and should easily quadruple in the next few years. And they are trying to uh, accomplish what uh, APAC, which is the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, is trying to do with most, mostly within the Jewish community, although just as there are a number of uh, Christians who attend APAC, there were uh, quite a number of uh, Jews who attended uh, Kufi. A lot of Jews are very curious about why these evangelicals are supporting Israel so much. 
And one thing that I picked up on this time that I hadn't picked up on as much in the past was, and I heard this from uh, several different speakers in one session I attended, and that has to do with the fact that there is a sort of a deep-seated group suspicion on the part of Jews to Christians. And we can understand that because of approximately uh, 1,800 years plus of Christian anti-Semitism. And so there, there's, there's this knee-jerk reaction of suspicion, doubt, question, whenever they begin to hear about Christians supporting Jews. Why do they do that? Uh, are they, you know, after 2,000 years, of try, or almost 2,000 years of trying to kill us, why are they now being nice to us? What's this all about? So that was rather interesting. I attended one session uh, yesterday afternoon on Christian Zionism, and three different people spoke and uh, talked about different aspects of Christian Zionism. There, it was an extremely large audience there. There may have been, oh, I don't know, close to seven or eight hundred people, and that they only had three breakout sessions. They don't have as many breakout sessions as APAC does. So there were probably eight or nine hundred in each of the breakout sessions. And then the afternoon session was on uh, U.S.-Israel relations, just sort of a retrospective as well as a forecast. And the three uh, panelists at, on, in that breakout session were John Podoritz and Jennifer Rubin, both of whom write for Commentary Magazine, which is a uh, conservative, Jewish-oriented a journal that deals with a lot of political, international uh, things and is exceptionally well done. And then um, yesterday morning I attended a plenary session. John Hagee spoke briefly, and then um, Senator Joseph Lieberman and, um, oh, what's the other guy's name? Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager talked, and he was very good. And he's on the radio. He's uh, so it was it was quite interesting, quite good tonight. Uh, uh, Glenn Beck was addressing them at their banquet, and uh, I didn't stay today because I had to catch a plane to be back here for y'all. So, but it was uh, it was good. It's always interesting to go hear new things. A few new things I picked up on. Uh, saw some old friends, met some new ones. So it was a uh, it was a good time. All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter three. Acts chapter three. And tonight we'll finish up this third chapter and move into what happens as a result of Acts 3. Now, if you remember, Acts 3 began with a healing as Peter and John were going to the temple uh, one afternoon for the 3 o'clock prayer preceding the evening offering. As they entered into the gate to the temple, going from the uh, court of the Gentiles into the court of the women, a court that was that is described as the beautiful gate, they saw a lame man, a man who had been lame from birth. He's approximately 40 years old, and he is, uh, he's never walked, and he's begging for alms. And Peter looked at him and said, um, what I have I will give to you. Reach down. He says, stand up and walk. And he reached down and grabbed his arm and pulled him up. Uh, no evidence of faith on the part of the lame man. It is Peter whose faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his mission is able to command him in the name of Jesus of Nazareth to stand up and walk. And the result is that the lame man leaps, walks all around, 
the temple. Now, what this does is it gives a tremendous visual display to all of those Jews who are here on this particular afternoon of a miracle. They all know this man. This isn't something that's done uh, inside of a church somewhere. It's not something that's done that's uh, just some minor mi- miracle that could be uh, some sort of psychosomatic healing. They've all known this man. He's been out here probably 20 or 30 years begging. They know that he's been uh, lame from birth. He's never walked. And so this is a fantastic testimony of the power of God. And as this happens and the crowd gathers uh, in the portico of Solomon, Peter began to uh, preach. This was this is his third message in uh, in the book of Acts. The first was in the upper room. The second is on the day of Pentecost. This is the third. And he focuses his message on who Jesus is, what has happened to Jesus, and the fact that what has happened was predicted in the Old Testament and planned by God, and it has a, part of its purpose is to bring redemption for the nation Israel, not just individually, but as a nation and bringing in the kingdom. And so the offer, uh, the whole message focuses on the key verse that we looked at last time, uh, verses, uh, key verses rather, 19 to 21. Repent, which means to turn or to change your mind, literally, change your mind, therefore, and be converted. And that word epistrepho means to turn, that your sins may be blotted out so the times of re, uh, refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that term, times of refreshing, as I pointed out, relates to the millennial kingdom. And that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, another term related to the millennial kingdom. So it's a clear t- you clearly have a, have a, a time uh, schedule here where uh, Jesus is crucified. He must go to heaven until a certain event takes place, until the time of, of um, restoration of all things. So that indicates uh, for the first time for us in, in, the, in Revelation of God here that there's going to be a time gap between the ascension and the millennial kingdom, which, of course, now is stretched to 2,000 years, and we still have the coming of, of uh, the tribulation in the future as well as... Uh, um, the rapture, all of this will come, the rapture first, then the tribulation, and then the second coming. Now, up to this point, as I focused uh, our attention last time, he has simply alluded to scriptures, pulled phrases from different Old Testament passages, but then he quoted from Deuteronomy eighteen, fifteen, beginning in verse uh, 22, which we looked at last time. And he says... <clears throat> Peter looks at them, he said, this is what Moses predicted. Jesus is this prophet. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from, a, from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. Now, this is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 18.15. As Moses predicted, there would be a future prophet, one like him, that is, and, and this has not been fulfilled ever in history. But notice uh, at the, he, there's a command in verse 15, him you shall hear according to all, all 
uh, you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord. So him you shall hear. You're not going to avoid the voice of God, for he will send this other prophet. This is uh, also cited, Deuteronomy 18.15 is also cited in Stephen's sermon in Acts 7.37-38, which shows that the early church clearly understood Deuteronomy 18.15 and following to be related to the Messiah. It's a messianic uh, prophecy. The fact that this is talking about a prophet, a prophet, as we saw in Exodus 7.1 and 2, is a spokesperson for God. We see that specifically when the Lord said to Moses, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. And so here we see the core uh, definition or concept of a prophet. It's as a spokesperson for God to the people. Now, I also pointed out that when he, Moses said he will be a prophet like me, the uniqueness of Moses' ministry as a prophet was that God spoke to him face to face. God did not communicate to him simply in dreams or visions as he did with others, but he spoke with Moses uh, face to face. And so there's a uniqueness to Moses' role as a prophet. He functioned as a mediator between God and the people. God spoke to him, communicated to him face to face. There was a unique rapport and intimacy between God and Moses. Moses is not only the lawgiver, not only a prophet, but he's also the lawgiver and he is the leader of the people, and so as such, he, uh, the, the prophet who will be like him must be at least of that magnitude. And so this, I pointed out, is not fulfilled by anybody else in the, in the Old Testament. There have been guesses made that this is possibly fulfilled by Joshua, but at the end of Deuteronomy, it makes it clear that Joshua was not like Moses. It's not Jeremiah, Isaiah, none of these other prophets functioned as, as, uh, as Moses did. Now in verse 23, it goes on to continue the uh, quote from Deuteronomy 15, and verse, uh, verse 23 quotes from uh, verse 18 of Deuteronomy, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So just as Deuteronomy had clearly stated it, that every word would be required, that is, they would be accountable to obey every word from this prophet, it is restated a little bit here that those every soul who will not hear the prophet, that is, not hear and obey, hearing in the scriptures, not just having your ears tickled, but to uh, respond and obey, every Soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now, the word that's translated destroyed here is a somewhat antiquated uh, Greek word, which was is only used a couple of times in the New Testament, used numerous times in the Septuagint to translate the concept of being cut off. For example, many times in the in the uh, Mosaic Law. When God says if somebody does something or is disobedient, then they will be cut off from the people. And that idea, we don't know, it sounds to us like, well, does that mean they're just expelled and they have to go uh, sit in a uh, cool-down room somewhat for a few days? Or uh, what exactly does it mean to be cut off from the people? And this is an extreme term that it indicates death in many cases, that they will be 
uh, it was capital punishment for disobedience. So they would be destroyed. We see um, a couple of passages here in Psalm 92, verse 7, and Psalm 106, 34. Both use this word, ex alethruo. In Psalm 92, 7, we read, When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed. There's that word, ex alethruo. They may be destroyed forever. Psalm 106.34, they did not destroy the peoples. This is talking about when the uh, conquest generation went into Israel, went into the promised land, and God said they were to annihilate every Canaanite. They were to kill every man, woman, and child. No Canaanite was to survive. Uh, that is what, what God's mandate was, and they failed to obey him. And so Psalm 106.34, in talking about that, says they did not Ex elithruo, they did not annihilate the people. So this word doesn't just mean they're cut off and they're, you know, sent to the timeout room for a little while, but it means that they are killed. It is a euphemism for uh, capital punishment and for death. So it's very clear that there is a penalty in this messianic prophecy in Deuteronomy um, 18, 15 through 19 that this prophet like Moses comes, if he is not listened to, then the people will be destroyed. And as we have seen from all of this, that the prophet that Moses speaks of, that is Jesus. This is being applied here and other places of Jesus. Now in verse 24 we read, yes, he goes on to say, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. Now, remember I said last time, based on Exodus, that a prophet is a spokesperson for God. A prophet basically represented the Supreme Court of Heaven to the people. And in many cases, the prophet is not just, it isn't focusing on just telling the future. The future is told as sort of a secondary idea to the primary message, which is usually confronting the people with the fact that they have disobeyed God's law. In that sense, the prophet functioned like a, uh, like the attorney general of a state. He represents the law to the people and challenges the people in terms of their disobedience. And this is the role of the prophet. Now, the first prophet mentioned here is Samuel. Samuel was probably the first writing prophet in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Scriptures, they have a different way of ordering the books and uh, a different order and different classification. You have the Torah, which is called the Law. Sometimes we refer to it as the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, in our English Bibles, we take the next set of books, from Joshua to through uh, Esther as the historical books. But most of those, a couple of exceptions, Esther's uh, in the writings, but in the um, Hebrew canon, that's referred to as the former prophets, the former prophets, because those books are all written by prophets. Uh, we don't know. They, they're not always in a, 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 a 
there's not always a specific statement as to who wrote them, but they were written by Samuel, uh, Gad, Nathan, uh, others who were mentioned within those historical events. So Samuel is the first that we know. Samuel, Joshua may have written some of, uh, of uh, Joshua. Perhaps Samuel did. Samuel lived at the end of the period of the Judges, so Samuel could be the prophet who brought together both Joshua and Judges and finalized that. He could have been responsible for the uh, recording of parts of uh, 1 Samuel, but he dies about two-thirds of the way through 1 Samuel. So he wouldn't have written the rest of the books that we uh, ascribe to him, uh, the rest of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. So um, Peter says, yes, all the prophets, and he's, he, here he's addressing the people in the, in the temple courtyard, and he said, go back and read the prophets, read Samuel all the way forward, and you will see again and again how they foretold these days. So here's a clear statement that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, had prophecy after prophecy after prophecy related to the Messiah. And there are over 300 prophecies in the, New, in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus the first time. Now, that just doesn't happen, as I've pointed out. The chances of, that, of, of just 10 of those prophecies coming true in one person are, are astronomical. You almost have a better chance winning the Texas lottery than you do uh, having 10 of those prophecies come true in one person. But we're not talking about 10 prophecies. We're talking about almost 300 prophecies coming true in one person. That is virtually impossible for that to take place unless God is the one who was working and bringing this about to fulfill prophecy. So Peter says all the prophets from Samuel and those followers, have spoken and have foretold these days. In verse 25, he says, he says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our father. So the first thing he says, you're the sons of the prophets. Now here, he's using this term in terms of you have the heritage of the prophets. Most of the time when we see a phrase in, in uh, the New Testament, you are the sons of something, that usually indicates uh, some sort of adjectival description. You're the son of a fool. That means you're a fool. That was a Hebrew uh, way of expression. So in the Old Testament, if someone was a murderer, they might be called the son of a murderer. If they were lawless or destructive or rebellious, then they'd be called the son of Belial. Uh, other terms like that. So when Jesus comes along and the emphasis is on his deity, he's called the son of God. When it, the emphasis is on his humanity, he's called the son of man. Uh, <clears throat> in other passages where you have a statement, I am not a prophet or a son of a prophet, that is a statement, a, a, a way of emphasizing the fact that the speaker is not a prophet. But here... When Peter is speaking and he says, you are sons of the prophets, he's not using that idiom. He is basically saying, you are the heirs, you are the recipients of the teaching of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers. Now, when he speaks of this, he uses the word covenant in a, as a singular noun. Now, on, on Sunday morning... When we were in our study in Colossians and I was off in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, 
we had a plural use of the word covenants. And I pointed out that that Paul there speaks of the covenants of promise. It's not just one covenant. It's not just the Abrahamic covenant, but the covenants that developed or expanded the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, which promised the land or the real estate of Israel to the Jewish people in perpetuity. You had the Davidic covenant, which promised that the seed would come through the line of David and that God would give David an heir who would establish an eternal throne and an eternal kingdom. And then you have the new covenant, which changes the hearts of the people so that they can live in obedience in that kingdom. Now, those covenants have not been brought to completion yet. But in Ephesians 2, we had the phrase, the covenants of the people, and the plural noun. Well, here we just have the singular noun, the covenant which God made with our fathers. And he is specifically speaking of, in light of the quote, of the Abrahamic covenant. And I pointed out that the Abrahamic covenant had three basic aspects, a promise of land, a promise of seed, and a promise of blessing. But what he's focusing on here is the seed promise, the blessing promise. And this comes from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God promised to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. What's interesting is in English you have this word curse used twice. And we think of a curse as some sort of witchcraft, juju black magic, somebody's going to take out their uh, well magic wand like Harry Potter and cast a spell, and they're under a curse. That's, that's really not how the Bible uses the word curse. A curse is to come under God's judgment, to become under God's punishment. So... You have two, but you have two different words that are used in Hebrew that are translated curse. And the first word that's used here is a word that speaks of a strong, harsh punishment or judgment. The second word that's used is a word that is really basically means the one who treats you with disrespect, the one who treats you lightly. It's not the same word in Hebrew in both cases. So it should be translated, I will harshly judge the one who treats you with disrespect. I will harshly judge the one who treats you lightly. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that phrase, in you, represents a Hebrew participle, I mean a Hebrew preposition that's just the letter B. And it, it's, it's like the, similar to the Greek preposition N, E, N. And it has not only the sense of location, which is how it's translated or how, what it sounds like here in you, but it also has the idea of means or instrumentality. So it, it should be translated by you or by means of you or through you. All the families of the earth will be blessed. So we have a promise here that anyone who treats the Jewish people lightly, casually, or with disrespect, not to mention anti-Semitism, God will harshly judge. And no country, no nation, no peoples on the earth has ever 
survived being anti-Semitic. Every nation that has turned against the Jews has been destroyed historically and wiped out. Of course, the most recent example that we've seen has been that of the uh, Nazis, the Germans in World War II, and the Third Reich did not last but a few of the predicted thousand years. So God's promise is that he will bring blessing to all families of the earth through the Jewish people. Now, this is not a natural blessing. There are many things that the Jewish people have provided, uh, artists, musicians, scientists. They, today in Israel, we, we see numerous technological innovations take place uh, that we use every day, everything from the uh, technology for answering machines to uh, technology in agriculture. Uh, drip irrigation is one uh, one innovation that they have had today, they're working fast and furiously to develop an electrical grid in the nation so that they'll be the first nation where everybody drives an electric car. And, of course, if you understand the psyche and the circumstances of the Jewish people, they're, they're basically saying, we, we're tired of giving our money to the Arabs for oil. And then they turn around and use that money to uh, fuel terrorism against us. So we're going to go on the electric grid and they're making some remarkable process. In fact, there's a uh, book that, if you're interested to read, that uh, documents a lot of their technological advances. It's called The Startup Nation by uh, Dan Sener, S-E-N-O-R. And I heard him speak last year at the uh, APAC conference. But um, what they proposed doing, what this one innovator, entrepreneur in Israel, proposed doing was setting up, uh, like, gas stations, uh, where people, you know, electric cars and batteries run out and everything else. So what they're going to do is they're going to set up gas stations all over the country. And instead of getting gas, you just pull in. It, it takes about two and a half, three minutes, four minutes to fill up your car with gas. You'll pull in with your electric car. You'll drop a battery, get another battery put in, and you're out in under two minutes. So they've really come up with some fascinating, innovative ideas to try to uh, make the whole electric car uh, experiment work. And they are uh, <clears throat> moving uh, ahead with that very quickly. They've also had some remarkable innovations technologically in relation to computers because if there's any nation in the world that ought to be concerned about computer security and being hacked, and this nation, I've heard this from for a number of years from people I know who've worked in the Pentagon, the Pentagon gets, there's a, 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 there's 17 to 25,000 attempts to hack the Pentagon computers every day. It may even be more than that. And you can just imagine if uh, nations are trying to hack the, all of our computers, and last week there was an incredible breach of the Pentagon computers and a lot of information was, uh, was stolen and was uh, <clears throat> uh, taken probably by the Chinese, you can just imagine the uh, Arabs trying to hack anything in Israel. So they're at the forefront of computer security and technology, and nobody does it better than um, than the Israelis. So <clears throat> they, there are many reasons that the Jewish people bless the rest of the world, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the spiritual blessing of salvation for all mankind comes through the Jewish people. They have the scriptures that give us the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the Messiah and salvation. And then Peter concludes his message and says, to you first, indicating 
that it's not, not to you only, but to you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus. And this is now the second time he has mentioned the resurrection. Back in verse 15, when addressing them, he says that they killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And here again, he refers to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It wasn't a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't a psychological resurrection. It was a physical bodily resurrection of the dead. Uh, Jesus came out from the grave in a resurrected physical resurrection body, walked around, had well over 500 people as witnesses of this resurrection, and those in his audience knew that. They had heard the stories. They had uh, friends and family members perhaps who had seen the resurrected Jesus, and so this just, just cuts them to the quick. They know that this has happened. There's no challenge. Nobody's saying, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. We know he really didn't die up there on the cross, that he just passed out. No, they knew all about the temple guard, the Roman guard as well that was put on the, on the tomb. They knew that he was truly dead, that they had the fact that he had been, uh, that the spear had pierced his side and the fact that as John recorded, it looked like blood and water came out. Actually, that is a uh, separation. Uh, within the blood of the red blood cells and uh, the the lymph so that it looks or appears to be water. That only happens if you're dead. And so this indicated clearly that Jesus had died before they put him in the tomb. So they knew he was dead. There's no challenge to this. But now as he's preaching, and what we get when we come into verse 1, now, before we get into verse 1, he says, uh, as Peter closes, he said, For you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you. Jesus is the blessing. He's connecting Genesis 12.3 to what he is, the role of Jesus. He's the one who was sent to bless you. And how? By, again, it's this instrumental phrase using that Greek preposition, en, here it's transliterated for you. En indicates means. How is Jesus going to bless you? By turning every one of you away from your iniquities. And the word that is used here is another form of, of the word epistrepho we had earlier for turning. This has a different uh, preposition at the beginning. Apa is the preposition here. Apostrepho. And this word means to turn, to cause a change in belief or behavior. So this should be translated in order to turn every one of you from your iniquities. Now, what's their iniquities in context? In context, it is the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And so they're going to turn from rejecting Jesus as the Messiah to accepting Jesus as the Messiah. But this message is having an extremely agitating effect on one group of listeners. And we are introduced to them in the first verse of the next chapter. We're told, now as they spoke to the people. So the idea is that while Peter is still preaching, there's movement in the background. The Sadducees, the temple guard, the priests, other leaders have become quite agitated that here you have Peter out here confidently, boldly proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ and claiming that he is the fulfillment 
of these Old Testament passages. And so we read in verse 1, Now as they spoke, or while they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, three groups, came upon them. Now these three groups are truly all part of the Sadducee party. After, just take you back a minute, go back to the end of the Old Testament Hebrew Scripture period. You have the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. by the Assyrian uh, kingdom, Assyrian Empire. Then you have the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah by the Babylonian Empire in 586. The captives, the Jewish people, for the most part, the ones that are left, are taken to Babylon. And for approximately 70 years, they are in what is called the Babylonian captivity. They are exiles. They are out of the land. And then after the Babylonian or Neo-Chaldean or the Chaldean Empire, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, was defeated by the Medes and the Persians, then it was uh, Darius who let the people, or Cyrus rather, who let the people go back, gave a mandate for the people that they could return, the Jewish people could return to their uh, homeland. And there were three or four different returns that took place. The initial return with Zerubbabel was about 44,000 to 50,000 people. And that occurred about 536, 537 B.C. And they went back and they had to bring things back into order and they began to rebuild the temple. And this became known as the Second Temple. And the period of that return is described in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and in the minor prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. That takes us up to approximately 430 B.C., and that's the closing of the Hebrew canon. And then you have silence from God until the New Testament era. And so there's approximately 400-plus years when God is silent, there's no new revelation uh, being given. Now, during that time, there are changes that took place within the worship of Israel for God. They were just completely um, uh, uptight about the whole concept of ever falling back into idolatry. So they began to establish various traditions uh, within the Talmud, it's referred to building a fence around the law. That is the, the series of traditions and commandments that would be like a fence. These would be secondary commandments so to protect people from violating the 613 commandments of the Mosaic law. They had these other traditions to keep you from ever creating that problem. For example, in the Mosaic law, there is the command that uh, they were not to boil a kid or a calf in its mother's milk. Now, the reason they were prohibited from doing that, if you go back and study the pagan religions at that time, was because this was one of the practices within pagan religions, and it had to do with the worship of pagan gods. Well, the big problem that Israel was condemned for and disciplined for in the destruction in 722 and in 586 was idolatry. So when they came back from the exile, the major issue is we have to prevent the people from ever getting sucked into idolatry again. 
So we have to protect us so these things can't happen. So in order to protect, keep the people from violating the boiling the calf and the mother's milk law, they are going to set up some secondary commandments so that it will be almost impossible to ever break the primary law. And so they separated their diet into different categories. So you have a dairy diet and you have a meat diet and you have certain plates and dishes and cookware for meat and certain dishes, plates, cookware for dairy. Even today you go to uh, some of the hotels that are kosher in, in Israel. And, uh, for example, one we stayed at on the last trip was, a, was dairy. So you didn't get any meat. You'd have pasta and sauces and other things, but you didn't have any meat because you're not going to risk the fact that the, no matter how well you might clean this particular pot, there might be a molecule of milk from, the, from a cow that just might possibly be the mother of the calf that gave up the, the meat that you're now cooking in that pot. So you completely separate these things. You can't have a hamburger and a milkshake. You can't have a cheeseburger. You know, you can go to one floor in a McDonald's and get your dairy products, another floor for meat products. You don't blend them. Now, that's in your uh, restaurants that observe kosher, your households that observe kosher. So this was set up as a, tra- as a tradition in order to protect the true law, which was don't boil a kid or a calf in its mother's milk. So all of those things came up, and they were developed. And you had two basic religious uh, parties that developed during the time. There were some secondary parties like the Essenes and others that uh, weren't really known very well until the discovery of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran in, in uh, 1948. But you have uh, you had the two primary parties of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees were the more rigid, conservative party. They were actually the heirs of an older uh, group called the Hasidim. Today we have a modern Hasidic or Hasidim. Haredim is another term used to refer to the ultra-Orthodox. But the term Hasidim actually originated with a group after the period of Ezra that was a hyper-Orthodox uh, group that was uh, given completely to the study of the Torah and the application of the Torah, and they became very, what we call very, very legalistic. The Pharisees probably were a derivative of that group. The term that was used uh, for calling them the Pharisees came from a Hebrew word, Pharisim, which meant separated ones. So they did not want to have contact with anybody who was considered to be a violator of the law or spiritually unclean. That's why we see them depicted in the uh, Gospels as not wanting to associate with tax collectors and drunks and prostitutes or anyone who was in violation of the law. So the Pharisees were extremely moral, and they were... Uh, they believed in the text, so that was their value. They were sort of the predecessors of today's orthodox and um, ultra-orthodox communities in, in Judaism. Then on the other hand, you had the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were the pragmatic crowd. They were the rationalists. And the Sadducees uh, really dominated within the political structure of the time. Most of the members of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees, 
Almost all the priests were Sadducees. The high priest was Sadducees. Uh, the captain of the temple guard, he's basically the captain of the temple police. And to keep order on the temple mount itself, uh, he was second in command to the high priest. Only the high priest had greater authority than the captain of the temple, and he too would have been a Sadducee. So most of these who were gathered here uh, are, are Sadducees. And what characterized the Sadducees was, first of all, they did not believe in bodily resurrection. There was no future resurrection. They did, when you died, you died. That was it, and it was over with. So they are extremely upset and agitated over this proclamation of the uh, <clears throat> bodily resurrection. They associated that with the Pharisees, and they thought this was a Pharisaic innovation. This was just some nouveau doctrine that the Pharisees had uh, dreamed up. So they're very upset about Peter, John, the disciples teaching about the resurrection of Jesus. They also denied the existence of angels or spirits. So they're basically like today's religious liberals. They don't really believe in God. They don't really believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in angels or spirits. They're very, they can't see it, feel it, touch it, and reproduce it in the scientific laboratory. Then it didn't exist. They were loyal to the Roman government. They cooperated. Uh, they would be called quislings in a modern term, in a modern sense, coming out of a, <clears throat> the, out of the World War II era. They had uh, extreme loyalty to the Roman government. So when Rome, after, when they, they aligned themselves with Rome in the, in the um, Jewish revolt from 66 to 70. So once the uh, Jews were put down and defeated by the Romans, the, the, the Sadducees had aligned themselves to those who had defeated them. So they had no power base after the destruction of the temple in AD 70. They had a desire to maintain the status quo. They were associated with the uh, wealthy class, and they adhered only to the Pentateuch. They didn't pay any attention to the rest of the of the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, only the uh, first five books of Moses. Now, when the Sadducees heard this, the text in Acts 4.2, uh, well, at the end of verse 1, it says, they, at, while they were speaking, the, this group, the priests, captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, came on them. It's, it's, a, it's an aorist verb tense, and it indicates this is sudden. They just came on them. They, 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 as soon as they heard about this, they gathered their people together, and they ran out there to stop this from happening. It's a very dramatic scene, and they are highly agitated. The uh, word translated for this is the, the Greek word uh, diaponeomai, and it's a present participle, which means that it's happening at the same time as their appearance, they're coming upon them, and it means that they are thoroughly exercised, that they are worked up, they're disturbed, they're agitated, uh, they are just beside themselves. They're so upset and angry and frustrated that this is going on because they hate this doctrine of the resurrection. And they're disturbed because Peter and John and the others are teaching and preaching. Two different words. Didasco means to teach, to give instruction, to go through the law, the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, the prophets point by point, showing all the different prophecies that were fulfilled specifically in Jesus. And then they preach. Now, we live in a world today that has taken the concept of preaching and ripped it out of the Bible and distorted it. 
We've created a rhetorical style. You can turn on TV and you can see preachers who are quite dramatic and have all kinds of uh, different mannerisms and a style of of, uh, preaching that is supposed to be what takes place on Sunday morning. That's not what the Bible means by preaching. The word that's translated preaching here is the word katangelo, and this means to simply announce something, that Jesus has come, that Jesus died for your sins, that Jesus rose from the dead. That is a proclamation. The other word that's used, keruxo, the verb kerugma for a sermon, also has that thrust. It is simply to make a proclamation. But didasco is is a key word, and it means to instruct, to go point by point through what the Scriptures teach so that people understand it and can see how to apply it. It is not preaching. Neither of these are preaching in what you find in most uh, churches today. It is not uh, good homiletics. None of these guys would have passed a modern homiletics course. Homiletics is the modern study of preaching. So the Sadducees are all upset that the apostles are teaching and proclaiming in, in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And then in verse 3 we read, and they laid hands on them, that is, they grabbed them, they arrested them, they put them in custody until the next day. It's almost dark. It's too late to have a trial. There are certain rooms within the temple precincts where they can lock them up overnight, and so they basically arrest them and put them in a holding cell until they can have a trial or a hearing the next morning. And so they put them into custody until the next day. And then in verse 4 we read, However... Many of those who heard the word believed. 5,000 males believed. That means just, just the men, just the males. But there were, in addition to that, women and children who also believed. So there could have been fifteen or 20,000 who trusted and believed in Jesus as the Messiah on that particular, on that particular day. Now, what's interesting is the word that's used here that's emphasized is believed. They believed. It doesn't say they repented. Now, what was the command back in verse 19? Repent and be converted in turn. And today people take the word repent, and you have to repent of your sins before you can be saved, and that's not what the text says. Repent is a mental attitude word, which means to change your mind about Jesus. And what do you do when you change your mind about Jesus? You believe in him. You trust him as Savior. So their response was to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and to uh, trust in him. And it's it's only the men are numbered, 5,000 men. Now, we had 4,000 who got saved, not 4,000 men, but 4,000 people who got saved on the day of Pentecost. So by this time, there's 30 or 40,000 Jewish Christians in Jerusalem just within a week or two. So the church is exploding, and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, you can just imagine how they must feel. It's out of control, and they just have to do something to stop this. So we read in verse 5, it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, 
were gathered together at Jerusalem. Now, this is the Sanhedrin that comes together. This is the ruling council uh, over the Jews. The, the Romans ruled. They were a uh, they were under the uh, Roman authority, but the Jewish leadership still functioned, especially over all things religious. And so they, the Sanhedrin gathers together. It was a collection of uh, 71 rulers, most of whom were uh, Sadducees. It's referred to in the scriptures as a body of elders in Luke 22:66, and Luke 5:21. It's referred to as uh, Gerusia, which is translated as Senate. Josephus referred to it as the Council, the Boule, in his Antiquities. Uh, the term that is used most of the time in the Mishnah is the Sanhedrin, uh, which is the ultimate law court, the rulers of, over the uh, over the Jews at this particular time. It first appeared in history approximately 200 B.C., and it continues its role as the rulers over uh, the Jews until the Jewish revolt began in 66 um, 66 AD. And then after the Jewish revolt, there is another body that comes up of rulers that's also called the Sanhedrin, but it's, there's not a connection between the two. Now, Annas, who's mentioned here, is the high priest as appointed by the Jews, but the Romans tried to regulate the Jewish observance so they wouldn't allow a, a high priest to rule from be in the office for more than six or seven years. So from the Jewish perspective, Annas is still the high priest. He's still, he was like the godfather. The, the, the high priestly family ran everything. And he is like Don Corleone from the godfather. He ran, I mean, all the concessions, all the people selling all the um, uh, sacrificial animals and doing the money changing, all of that happened under the uh, control of the, uh, of the high priestly family. Annas is still in control. Now, Caiaphas was his nephew. Uh, Caiaphas was the high priest from uh, 18 to 36. So he is still the high priest. He was the high priest at the time that uh, Jesus was crucified. But he's the high priest that the, that Rome put in there because they weren't going to let somebody come in as high priest for life, which is what the uh, Mosaic law had um, had demanded. And then you have the mention of John and Alexander, and these were uh, two others in the family of the high priest who had a uh, <clears throat> position of authority uh, over the Sanhedrin and within the priesthood. So they all come together in verse 5 and verse 6, and they come together and they bring in John and Peter, verse 7, when they'd set them in their midst, so they're sitting surrounding them in a circle, and they ask the question, by what power or by what name have you done this? And then Peter responds. Now, in verse 8, we have a couple of things we ought to pay attention to here. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this filling of the Spirit is not the filling by means of the Spirit that you and I have. This is not an Ephesians 5.18 phraseology. In Ephesians 5.18, as I pointed out to you before, you have the command to be filled and it's the Greek verb plerao, by means of the Spirit. It is the Greek preposition in plus the dative of for the Holy Spirit. Here we have a different but related word, pimplemi. 
And pimplemi is found frequently in Acts with the genitive to be full of something. And, and the genitive describes the content of something. For example, if I say to fill up my uh, glass uh, with ice water, I would use a genitive there because I'm talking about the content of what is in the glass. But if I'm talking about what you're going to use to fill my glass with, and I say fill my glass with that pitcher, then the pitcher becomes the means, and I would use the phrase in plus the dative to indicate what you're using to fill my glass with ice water. So Ephesians 5.18 talks about being filled by means of the Spirit. The Spirit isn't the content of the filling. He is the one who is filling us with something. When you compare Ephesians 5.18 with Colossians 3.16, you realize that we are to be let the Word of Christ dwell within us, so the Spirit fills us with the Word. But this is a completely different idiom than what we have here, to be full of the Spirit. Every time you have this verb and this phraseology from Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist in Luke 1, Elizabeth in Luke 1, Mary in Luke 1, it's always followed by some sort of speaking. They're full of the Spirit and they say something. It is something similar to the process of inspiration. It is unique to this period of history. And it is not something that is the result of being in fellowship. It's not something that's the result of any volitional decision that they made. It is a sovereign act of God where suddenly he uh, gives them the Holy Spirit for a particular purpose, and they say something that is the result of this uh, being full of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter now speaks under inspiration of the Spirit, and we see a totally different Peter than we saw just a few weeks before. There, when he's sitting by the fire outside the uh, courtroom where Jesus is being interrogated, uh, he's identified. Somebody says, oh, I know you. You were one of those who followed the Galilean. You're, you're one of Jesus' disciples. And three times he denied the Lord. He was just a simpering coward. Now he is bold. He's in front of the all the power brokers in Judea, and they all are angry with him, and they all want to kill him, destroy him. They just killed Jesus, so why not expect that he could be killed? And he is just the, he is relaxed, he's calm, and he is, he's going to just turn the whole case against them. Now, what we see here is an example of what Jesus told the disciples to expect. He said that they would meet opposition, they would be arrested, and that they would be uh, taken before kings and before governors, and that they would be persecuted for his sake. And so he instructed them before uh, the crucifixion. He said, therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. Don't try to get in your head how you're going to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. So this is something that is a supernatural uh, empowerment that comes from the Holy Spirit so that they can answer the charges against them. And Peter begins 
in verse 9, he says, if we this day are judged, or he says, first of all, in verse 8, rulers of the people and the elders of Israel. Notice he's very polite. He has respect for authority. He's not challenging them personally. He addressed them, rulers of the people, elders of Israel. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means, uh, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, he's not backing up at all. He's not afraid of the power in front of him. He just sees this as an opportunity to witness and, and make the gospel clear to the 71 members of the Sanhedrin. And he does it in a relaxed manner. He's not defensive. He's not hostile. He doesn't feel threatened. He, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he's, he uh, just makes it very clear. And he, he immediately goes on the offensive. How can you judge us for a good deed? I thought that's what we were all about as Jews is doing good. How can you judge? We, we, this was a helpless man who's been a cripple for 40 years. So how could he, how could you judge us for this? If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means has he been made well? Look at what happened. How did we do this? Well, we're going to make it clear to you, to all the people of Israel, that by, it was done by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, and by him, that is by Jesus, this man stands here before you whole. And then he connects it to the Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, Psalm 118.22. Jesus is the stone that was rejected. Now, in context, in Psalm 118.22, the stone that's rejected is, is the nation Israel, the Jewish people. But the, the embodiment of everything God intended the Jewish people to be is in the Messiah. And he is the one who is rejected so uh, Peter applies that verse to Jesus. And then he says, nor is there salvation in any other. Now, he uses the word salvation, which can mean healing, but can also mean eternal salvation as sort of a, in sort of a full sense of the word, because he's talking about not only just as this man was healed, he's also saved. It's done with the same word, so there's a little bit of a play on words there, and he focuses that just as Jesus, by the name of Jesus, this man was healed, there's no other healing or salvation in the spiritual realm in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, the result of this is something interesting, and we don't have time to cover it tonight, but I'll just whet your appetite for the next time, is that this just causes consternation among the Sadducees and so what and the Sanhedrin. So what they do is they look down at verse 18. They call them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. It, just legal fiat. You can't do this anymore. And Peter and John answered and said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. But we cannot but speak that which we have seen and heard. So they're going to disobey the authority set over them. So how, what principles do we derive from this passage in understanding when it is legitimate to violate the commands of, a, of an authority that God has set over us? And when is it, 
When is it right to disobey and when should we obey? And we'll look at that when we come back next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to look at your word and to see what a tremendous um, tremendous thing this must have been to w- witness Peter's sermon out there in the temple grounds and then his confrontation of the Sanhedrin, his explanation of the gospel and just how so many trusted in Christ as their Savior during this time. Father, we pray that we might recognize that that same power is available to us in terms of our own spiritual life and that, as Paul told Timothy, we have been given not the spirit of fear but a spirit of courage and boldness. And we too, if we are trusting in you, can have the same courage, the same boldness to proclaim the truth of the gospel and pray that you would strengthen us to do that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.